I listened to Otis Blue by Otis Redding for months. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Spin It, the record-ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music. I'm James, and with me on the mic is Connor. It's me! I am here, ready to talk about music. Great. Good. That is the whole reason I've called (laughs) you here today. I'll have you know. Got me in a real jazzy mood. Jazzy? Interesting. (laughs) I guess... I I don't know. He's a little closer to jazz. Mostly Otis Redding is classified as a soul singer, especially on this album, Otis Redding Sings Soul. Yeah, but what is soul but like sad jazz? Sad jazz? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I don't know. (laughs) How do you feel about soul music? Do you like it? Do you not like it? We've, We've kind of been soul adjacent at certain points on the podcast, and when we did Nina Simone. James. What? It touches me in my soul. Oh, well, predictable, but honestly, I feel like that's the intent behind calling it soul music, so I can't really be mad. That's literally its purpose. I was excited for this episode. Yeah? Yeah. I'll be honest, when you put him on the schedule, I was like, who the heck is this guy? You didn't know Otis Redding? No, name didn't ring a bell. Not even sitting on the dock of the bay? Zero bells were rang. Oh my gosh. Before listening to this album, and then one by one... The bells chimed. The bells started <laughs> ringing. Here they come. Yep, yep. That's a bell. That's a bell. That's a bell. Okay. <laughs> we had a whole chorus of bells. Yeah, I kind of figured that would be the case. I feel like a lot of people might be in your shoes. I feel like a lot of people might say, I don't know Otis Redding. But then you start digging in and you're like, okay, well, I know that. And I know this. And I know this. And I've heard this in another form. And like suddenly, yeah. It's Bell City. And suddenly a whole, a whole album has gone by. And That's right. It's just ringing in your ears. Yeah. Awesome. That's exciting. I have to point out this week, too, we kind of went from red to redding. Last week we did Taylor Swift. And, and, and that means next week we're doing Ing. Oh, no, but good guess, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what Ing would be. I'm so sorry for what I'm about to do to you. I don't know what that means, but okay. Sending you a link. Oh, dear. What? What is it? I'll be honest. I got way more results for Ing music than I thought I would. Yeah, I know. Well, everything is a thing. Who took my FL and made it fling? Who took my K and made it king? There's a song called the Ing song. It's all about adding I-N-G to words. It's a minute and 30 seconds. Right. To words or to letters? Because the two things you just described are adding Uh, Ing to letters. You're right. We can't let them keep getting away with this. Honestly, this kind of this kind of slaps. I think I'm picking it for my next solo episode pick. I can veto an ing. Who took my s and made it sing? Who took my w? Take wing. What? Who took my th and made it thing? Oh my darling, it was ing. Who took my fl and made it fling? Who took my k and made it king? Who took my spr and made it spring? Oh my darling, it was ing. Okay. Ing. 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 All done. That's the song. Great. Thanks. You're welcome. It's very important. So Otis Redding obviously stands on his own two feet, right? He's on his own merit. But to be fully transparent, I think this album should make you very excited for the spin cycle potential. Yeah. Yeah, because Otis Blue gives us easy access to Aretha Franklin, the Rolling Stones, the Temptations. The Temptations! Yeah, and a lot of other stuff right here 
on this album, which I love. Heck yeah. You also may be asking yourself, why on earth are we talking about Otis Redding and you didn't pick Sitting on the Dock of the Bay? I'm not wondering that. First you picked Journey and you didn't talk about Don't Stop Believing. Then you picked I Am and Earth, Wind, and Fire and you shoehorned in September. <laughs> you picked Red for Taylor Swift. Yeah. Instead of literally any of the other ones. Yeah. And now you're doing Otis Redding, but it's not Sitting on the Dock of the Bay? I have an answer. I can explain. You didn't even finish that one. That album? No, he didn't. It's true. I wish we could do both, but I looked and looked and looked. When I was looking for an Otis Redding album to get into, you know, I sometimes like to check what the highest ranked one is or the people's, you know, thoughts and opinions. And consistently, every single time, Otis Blue ranked higher. It seems like the title track is really the strongest part of the Dock of the Bay by a good bit. So, you know, I wanted to bring his very best foot forward to the podcast and also expose people to maybe some of the less mainstreamly familiar parts of his body of work, right? Like, uh, I wanted to get the bells ringing a little bit. Not to mention, right, like you said, he didn't finish it. Dock of the Bay is a posthumous album, so I feel like it's a little more impactful to have this record that he actually had a hand in seeing through all the way to its release. Makes sense to me. I think so. It makes sense to me, too, which is why we did it. But also, I would highly recommend you at least listen to the song, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, because that's like a cultural touchstone song. Like, that's a a must-listen song. Yeah. Also, I really love these deep history episodes, right, where we like to get into so many of the foundations of all this music that we know and love today. We've done a few of them. You know, Nina Simone and Elvis and Hank Williams come to mind. Duke Ellington. Like, this is an episode kind of like that, I think, where Otis Redding's legacy and his impact is immense. It's, like, tremendous, especially given the length of his life. I feel like he's still arguably one of the best-known names in soul music, despite having a career that only lasted half a decade. I mean, look at you. I mean, you didn't know him by name, but you knew so much of his work. The bells were ringing. They were ringing. And also, I mean, even though I knew some of his work, I did not know a lot about Otis Redding as a fella until I started researching for this episode. So I learned a lot of fascinating things. Yeah? What'd you learn? I learned a lot. I learned that Otis Ray Redding Jr. was born in 1941 in Dawson, Georgia. He was the fourth of six children. His father was a sharecropper, a worker at the local Air Force base, and a preacher. So, of course... As a preacher's kid, Otis got involved in church choirs from a really, really early age, and he started to learn a couple different instruments to accompany himself, like several. He took lessons on piano, guitar, vocals, and even the drums as early as 10 years old. He, I mean, started on a lot of things really early. He loved gospel music, but also he was heavily, heavily inspired by Little Richard. A ton. Like, it's hard to overstate how big of an influence Little Richard had on him. I also love Little Richard. Good golly, Miss Molly. Like, we need to do a Little Richard episode sometime soon. He'll be in the future, rest assured. When Otis was 15, his father got really, really sick with tuberculosis, and he had to start working to help support his really large family. So he started taking odd jobs at a gas station. He would dig wells. Well, well, well. Well, well, well. That's him, 15 years old out there in the world. Well, well, well. Supporting the family. But when he had the time and was able to find the gigs, he would definitely do music as often as he could. He would sing in his school band. He would sing gospel songs on the radio every Sunday. And every week, he competed in a talent competition. He was so good that he won the weekly $5 prize for 15 weeks in a row in this talent show. 
which is about $50 a week today. That's a lot. That's a lot, right? I know for a 15-year-old in a talent show, at what point do you just say, hey, look, we know you're gonna, you're good, right? Stop coming back. Like, let someone else win. Uh, after 15 times. Apparently, that's the cutoff. That's the limit. That's what literally what happened. They were like, give somebody else a chance. Please stop. Is it really? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. I just knew that he won it 15 times straight. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a bummer. But honestly, while that's a, a upsetting, he can't be too upset by that because that talent show connected him with guitarist Johnny Jenkins, who in turn connected him to his band, Pat T. Cake, like Patty Cake, and the Mighty Panthers. <laughs> band names in the 50s and 60s are just off the charts. I love them. But Pat T. Cake needs a new frontman. They need a new Pat. New Pat Cake. And Jenkins decides Otis is the right man for the job. 15-time talent show winner. Let's get him up on stage. That increased his pay to $25 per gig, which is $250 today. So he gets a pay raise. He gets, you know, high visibility as a front man in this band. Otis and the band, they spent the early 1960s on the Chitlin circuit, touring all over the Southeast, which we've talked about before a couple times for Duke Ellington and for Stevie Ray Vaughan and a few other people. So they're touring. Meanwhile, Johnny Jenkins is trying to break away from the band and go solo, wants a solo contract. So he gets a tip about Stax Records in Memphis, S-T-A-X, Stax. And he didn't have a driver's license. So he says, Otis, do you want to take me to Stax Records? Otis is like, sure, I'll take you. So they drove to his first recording session and Otis even got to perform two songs for himself after Jenkins' session ended early. So Otis gets on the mic. He sings a little Richard-esque rocker song called Hey Hey Baby. He sings another ballad called These Arms of Mine. The studio chief, Jim Stewart, said there was something different about it. He really poured his soul into it and he loved it. So he takes a chance and he signs Otis Redding himself. He's like, I know you came here for the other guy, but consider this. What about you? Otis's first single, first little record release, was made of those two songs. It came out in 1962 when he was 21 years old, and it would be charting within six months. It would go on to sell 800,000 copies, which is absolutely remarkable for an unknown 21-year-old. I mean, that just speaks to the power of his singing and musicianship. It really does. Yeah, I know, right? Otis's singles kept on coming, and in 1963, he headed to New York for a stint at the infamous Apollo Theater. His first proper LP, Pain in My Heart, came out in 1964, and it was so full of ballads and sad, slow songs, it earned him the nickname Mr. Pitiful. People started calling him Mr. Pitiful. Dang. I know. What kind of a nickname? It's sad. Gotta pity Mr. Pitiful. No. No? He did not stick the landing on that one. <laughs> you don't think we should pity Mr. Pitiful? What should we do for him? Throw him a party. Throw him a... Oh, cheer him up. That's actually very a good idea. But that nickname kind of stuck. On his second album a year later, it was called The Great Otis Redding Sings Soul Ballads, oftentimes just shortened to soul ballads. He really doubled down on the Mr. Pitiful thing. It's a mix of originals and covers. One of its biggest hits, of course, was called Mr. Pitiful, which was Otis Redding's first top 10 single. So he really leaned into it. He's happy being the soul ballad guy. Me too. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're kind of a soul ballad enjoyer. <laughs> I'm the soul ballad guy of the podcast. Oh, like the one and only, like S-O-L-E, soul ballad. What if you're the soul, soul ballad guy? Whoa. Oh, what if if you like the song Mr. Pitiful, you'd be the soul, soul ballad, ballad guy? Whoa. Is that too much? I think that's right on. Right on. <laughs> 
Okay. And in 1965, not even a year later, he was ready to record his third LP, Otis Blue. Its full title, though, is Otis Redding Sings Soul. So don't confuse it for Otis Redding Sings Soul Ballads, because that's a different album. (laughs) This is Otis Redding Sings Soul. Otis Blue. They recorded the album on July 9th and 10th. 1965, all but one track was recorded in a 24-hour period at the Stax Records recording studio in Memphis, Tennessee. So because of that, most of his accompaniment for the album came from the Stax house band, and it's notable because people theorize that this record is the first appearance of infamous Stax pianist Isaac Hayes, who helped define and shape the sound of soul music for years. Isaac Hayes, for the record, he wrote Soul Man, among other songs, and he made it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002. Also, Isaac Hayes was the voice of Chef in South Park. (laughs) So this album may be his musical debut, as far as people can tell. Three songs on Otis Blue are Otis Originals. Three songs are by Sam Cooke, a prominent soul singer at the time and an inspiration for Otis. Sam Cooke actually passed away after being shot a few months prior to the release of this album, so... Those songs are kind of a tribute to him and his legacy. And then the rest of the songs are covers from various other sources, which we'll go through once we get into the album in a bit. But it's a very good blend. Fair enough. The album came out, this is, I swear, total coincidence, but the album came out on September 15th, 1965, exactly 58 years to the day from this episode coming out. To the day. To the day. Happy! Happy birthday! That's right. Happy 58th birthday, Otis Blue. Wow. Not Otis Redding. Otis Blue. No. Right. That is correct. To be clear. And in true Otis Redding Stax record style, it's very soul, R&B, little blues leaning. What did you say? Like like jazz that hits you in the heart or whatever you said? I said sad jazz. Sad jazz. Yeah. Melancholy jazz. I guess. I'd argue it's more on the blues end of that spectrum. Sad blues. What is blues but, but melancholy jazz? What, that's... Soul is like jazz and blues had a baby. Okay, I'll go for that. Yeah, I'll give you that one. Otis Blue was a big hit on release, sold more than 250,000 copies, and honestly, it was a bit of a crossover hit, and it started to make a splash in the pop market beyond soul music's usual reach. Modern critics actually have said that Otis Blue is, quote, the soul album that sealed Redding's world reputation as a soul singer, the one whose title, with hindsight, probably did most to establish the use of the word soul to define the music previously known as R&B. So Otis Blue, Otis Redding Sings Soul, it's literally like a genre-defining album. People also point to this as an official harbinger of the album era and an imminent end to the era where singles were the dominant form of music. And as an album-ranking podcast, you know, how fitting that we explore all the way back to the places where the whole medium of the album as like an art form really kind of started. I love it. And you, the audience, still wanted us to do the other one. How, How dare, dare you? you? How dare you wanted us to do On the Dock of the Bay? No way. I say nay. I vetoed it before you even knew that you were going to disagree. Anyway, this is like the soul album to begin soul albums. It hit number 75 on the pop charts, and it had three charting singles, including I've Been Loving You Too Long, which was on the charts for 11 weeks, peaked at number 21. Respect 
was on the chart for 11 weeks, also peaked at number 35, and Shake on the charts for six weeks peaked at number 47. All pretty great songs, highlights, and maybe standout tracks from the album, as we'll see in a bit. But that's where we're hanging out today. That's today's album. As for the rest of Otis's career, you know, he's riding high. He bought a 300-acre ranch in Georgia that he named the Big O Ranch, and his success from this album and other music he was putting out also helped propel the success of Stax Records. Otis really became their flagship artist, and they started to branch out and expand their production capabilities so that they could help other future soul artists grow and develop even better. Otis also starts tapping into new markets. He became the first soul artist to perform in the Western U.S. after a pretty infamous show at the Whiskey A Go-Go in Los Angeles and the Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco. In 1966, one year after this album, and again like four years maybe into his career, Otis would release two more albums and even tour Europe, which is unreal like what an unreal fact and that produced a live album with recordings captured in london and stockholm and in march of 1967 he released an album of duet tracks with carla thomas known as the queen of memphis soul he also got to appear as the closing act on day two of the renowned monterey pop festival critics would actually go on to realize that moment as a natural progression from local to national acclaim the decisive turning point in otis redding's career but tragically his career wouldn't have much of a chance to follow the curve of that turning point on december 10th 1967 after a series of shows in cleveland ohio otis and his band boarded a plane and they were headed for madison wisconsin for a show the next day the weather was pretty rough there was a lot of fog and rain four miles from their destination the plane crashed and they never were able to establish a definitive cause for it nobody really knows what happened trumpet player ben Colley was the only survivor out of the plane's eight passengers. Otis Redding passed away at the age of 26, honestly at the peak of his popularity to that point. It was a devastating loss for his family, for Stax Records, and honestly for soul music as a whole. More than 4,500 people attended his funeral at Macon's City Auditorium, and he was buried in his Big O Ranch. So, yeah, that's kind of the official end of his career. Ended far too soon. Imagine what he could have done with more time. I know, right? That always happens. I always have that thought when someone dies young like that. Like, we speculate he was on, you know, the upward swing. It was going great. He's like... Turning point. Yeah. I saw a quote from somebody that said that they felt he was like one of the only soul artists to have staying power. It's like, but I always wonder, like, would he have if he had continued to like would there have been a drop off you know mm. would he have had his downfall right michigan kelly style <laughs> somebody buying tickets yeah it's a good question and it's it's always hard to say right i mean sometimes you do peak early and then sometimes your career is just getting going and and i don't know if you do end things at the peak at the pinnacle then you won't ever have that fall off and the best stuff is what people are going to remember it's honestly kind of what happened to the beatles right they were running into abbey road and then they broke up uh-huh so they never had a period where you're like oh more beatles music or like i can't believe they just put that out it's like they stopped at the top of their game and now they're legendary for it yep but it's yeah definitely definitely a big what if after his death Sitting on the Dock of the Bay became his only number one hit on the Billboard charts. It was actually the very first posthumous number one single in U.S. history, selling more than 4 million copies. And, of course, there were several posthumous albums released made of unreleased material, re-recorded versions of older songs, previous hits. 
you know, they just tried to compile some things in the wake of the tragedy. After the six albums released in his lifetime, there were five posthumous records, a total of 10 live albums, and dozens, honestly, dozens of compilation albums. So there's a lot of uh, Otis Redding out there, despite his short-lived career. As far as his accolades and awards go, after his death, the Jazz Academy in France named their best R&B record award after him. Future winners of the award would include Aretha Franklin, Curtis Mayfield, and Ike and Tina Turner. Otis also earned two posthumous Grammys at the 11th Grammy Awards, which were like on the 50-somethings now, so 11 is kind of a surprising number to hear. But he won two Grammys for sitting on the dock of the bay, and he received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 1999. He's in the Georgia Music Hall of Fame, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and the R&B Hall of Fame at Cleveland State University, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Rolling Stone named him the 21 greatest guitarist of all time, and the 8th best singer of all time, which is, I mean, what a list. What an honor. Also, other random little Otis Redding trivia tidbits that I didn't find a place to put in earlier. Otis met his future wife at 18. They were married in 1961. They had four children together. At the height of Otis's career, you know, in those later days, he was making roughly $35,000 a week from his live shows. By 1967, his royalties were bringing in more than a million dollars a year. There were years that Otis Redding would outsell big names like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin combined. (laughs) which is incredible. Wild. Right? Otis is what people have referred to as a catalog artist, right? Not necessarily someone who's going to be a big hit maker right off the bat, you know, release one song and sell a billion copies of it or whatever, but he's going to be someone whose work sells steadily and consistently over a longer period of time. That's a catalog artist, and that's what Otis is all about. Also, fun fact, apparently... At one point, he had more than 400 pairs of shoes and 200 suits. But that's the rundown. That's the long and short about Otis Redding. Maybe some bells have started to ring for you. Mainly long. Wasn't that long. Not that much short. Well, it's a quicker album. It's 11 tracks. So I wanted to. I just wanted to dedicate a lot of time to this iconic career. But now it's time to play some Factor Spin. This classic career? Oh, yeah. This, yes. Classic career of Otis Redding. But let's get the mixtaper out here. And let's play some Factor Spin. Hey, it's me. The mixtape. Hello, once again, mixtaper. How you feeling after last week's wild round of Factor Spin? It was pretty wild. If you didn't go check out the B-side to see how it all came out, you should definitely go check it out on our website, www.spinapod.com. I'm proud that you know our website. Of course I know our website. I know it very well. It's easy. It's just 10 characters. Easy to remember. I'll be honest. I don't know what order to put these in oh and it's been a minute so i'm gonna ask you to pick a number one to four okay i like it better as an occasional thing when it was every week i i got a little frustrated by it but once in a while you know that's fine well that's because it threw you off your rhythm not really let's go with number three what's fact number three supposed fact number three i'll tell you if it's true or not i'll be the judge of that (laughs) he dethroned the king i'll be the judge of that who put this ing on my k it was otis (laughs) Redding. No, he took he it took off. He took the ing off my K. He de-inged. <laughs> he decayed the ing. He de-inged the K. <laughs> oh, no. Now I feel like I kind of have to keep some of it in there. Uh-huh. Darn. <laughs> Look at what you've done. He dethroned the king. Yeah. What king are you talking about? The king of rock and roll. The king of rock and roll is exactly where my mind was about to go. Elvis Presley? Elvis Presley. Uh-huh-huh. Okay. How's he dethrone Elvis? Is this like a sales record? Is this a something? He stole 
or I don't know, stole the right word, but he ended Elvis's eight-year reign as the world's best male vocalist. Oh, wow. That is dethroning the king. So who's determining the best male vocalist? Is this a, a billboard thing? Is this a... There's a vote. Who's voting? Like Europe. All of Europe? Oh, man. So eight years Elvis wins. Which eight years? Otis got the title in 1967, so, you know, okay. subtract eight years from that. Right, so 1959. <laughs> yeah, the squirrels are nodding approvingly. Okay, good. So Elvis wins from, wow, 59 all the way up through. How long does Otis hold the title? How long is he the king? I don't know. That's a good question. Okay, I think this seems believable. All of Europe voting is interesting. I feel like there's a little more to the story there. But, I mean, there was a point when we talk about going out at the top of your career. That is a thing that Elvis did not do. And so, you know, I think there's a time when the king of rock and roll kind of hits the downward slope a little bit. Obviously, could be caught up to and passed in renown at any given point. I think this is true. I think he dethroned the king and became hmm. Europe's favorite male vocalist. Well, you might want to hold off on that judgment till I give you the last little bit of information. Oh, of course. Of course. Silly me. I'm being hasty. You are being hasty. Elvis got him a gift. Oh, really? <laughs> a thank you for relieving me of the burden of being the world's best male singer <laughs> award? Uh, a, like, congratulations gift. Sure. What do you get him? A limo. A limo. I thought you going to say a peanut butter banana sandwich. <laughs> a limo to have or a limo to ride in? When he made it to Europe for his tour. For his tour in Europe. Yep. I see. Well, that is a cool fact. And in, as a matter of fact, I do 100,000% uh, believe that he got off that plane in Europe and stepped into a limo. Unfortunately for you, I happen to know that that limo was sent to him by the Beatles. Yeah. And not Elvis. I'm not talking about when they when he first got there. Oh. So, yes, the Beatles sent him a limo, but this was later. This was later. Correct. Do I believe that, though? Oh, I don't know. Or do I believe that you tried to pull the rug under... I feel like... <laughs> I don't know what you believe. That's for you to decide. I feel like you just tried to, like, pull that one over on me and then panicked. I mean, that's fine. And just said, oh, it's a different limo. No, that's fine. So like it and spin. Yeah, I think that's... I'm going to call this one a spin. Although I do believe he dethroned the king. To be clear, I believe that happened. And I definitely think that the limo thing was supposed to be untrue. And I don't know what happened here at the end. It all kind of fell apart for you, I think. I mean, okay. So like it and spin. Yes. This is... A fact. Elvis sent him a second limo? Yep. No way. Oh, man. I was banking on you knowing Darn the it. Beatles trivia, which is why I was so insistent on including that bit of information. What a <laughs> devious play. You knew I would think you scrambled. Oh, my gosh. Well, I believed all the important parts of that. Yeah. That makes me feel a little better. It's always, again, a nice consolation prize when I'm at least mostly on track. What about fact number two? Fact number two? <laughs> That's a weird one. His music travels up and down frequently. Tra travels up and down frequently? Correct. Are you trying to just tell me that his music is frequently used as elevator music? Is that what this is alluding to? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, yeah, frequently travels up and down. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what, like sitting on the dock of the bay style elevator music? Or what songs specifically? Is there anything in particular? I'm not 100% sure, to be honest with you. Okay. Well, how do you say this? What's the statistic that, like, makes this a fact? Do people report what music they play in elevators? Is there a survey or a poll? How do we know? An elevator company 
includes his music as preset music on their elevators. <laughs> really? Yes. What elevator company is that? It is Schneider Elevators. Schneider Elevators includes Otis Redding as a default. I didn't realize elevators had default elevator music. I mean... Neither did I. <laughs> I just assumed that it was like a radio sort of thing where you just programmed it into what you want. Yeah. Yeah. It was something I learned about elevators. Wow. What other songs are on the default track list? I, I don't know. They just said that. For his 75th birthday, they did a whole article about him. The elevator people did a whole article about him? N- no. Oh. His family opened up the ranch to the public and had a big party and they did a bunch of stuff. And Got it. One of the, one of the facts in there was about how these elevator people love his music so much that they were including it as a default on their elevators. Gotcha, gotcha. Interesting. Goes up and down a lot. But is any of this true? I have to be honest. I have to be honest. Here's what's not sitting right with me. Okay. And I may be totally off. My brain is like telling me there's an elevator brand named Otis. And and you, th- oh, and you think I've made up a fact about that? I think you've definitely like taken that and twisted it into an Otis Redding thing. But that's that's a thing, right? I have no idea. I don't know elevator companies. Otis Elevators, <laughs> like that feels legit. Yeah, you didn't even know what may have been the made-up Schneider Elevators. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so you're going to spin then. I, something in my... The alarm bells. This is not the good bells that ring when I recognize Otis Redding's music. This is the alarm bell that's going off, and I think this one... Is a spin. I can't comfortably say it's a fact. Okay. This is a spin about Otis Elevators. Fair enough. This is... I hope Otis Elevators is real. A spin. Oh, it's a spin. Otis and... Elevators totally exists. You yes. Nailed it. I can't believe you know elevator brands. What? I can't either. <laughs> I just... I don't know if I ever could have... If you said name an elevator brand, I feel like I couldn't have. But just, I don't know. My brain just put it together with Elevator and Otis. I was lying through my teeth. On this one, Schneider elevators totally made them. I mean, they could be real, but I just picked that out of my brain. Uh huh. Elevators absolutely do not come with pre-programmed music. No, <laughs> I wasn't 100% sure about that either. That felt iffy. But I was like, I'm going to say it is. It'd be like, I didn't know that either. <laughs> <laughs> I was lying through my teeth on that one. I literally just typed the word Otis in the Google to see what I would get. The first one was a fender tracking information system for Michigan. That felt weird. Yeah, yeah, it did. And so then the next one was Otis Worldwide, the elevator company. And I was like, I can work with that. Mm. I can't believe you know Ella. What are the odds? <laughs> what are the odds? I, I don't know. I guess when I'm on an elevator looking up and down, I'm bored on my ride and just I subconsciously. That was so wild to me. <laughs> I osmosised that. Yeah. Diffusion. Osmosis is only water through a semi-permeable membrane. That's the one thing I remember from biology. I remember a few other things, but that's one of them. Every time someone says osmosis, I go, that's just for water. (laughs) Anyway. Wow. Wow. I'm going to have to check the elevators like around me in my day-to-day life and see if those are Otis. Because I might have been on an Otis today for all i know that's crazy right i mean i can't even be mad i mean i i I never would have bet on you knowing an elevator brand (laughs) i wouldn't have either here's what we learned today bet on yourself (laughs) yeah i'm gonna bet on myself next with fact number four his ranch 
was at the center of a radioactive mystery. This rocks. This is awesome. So what's the radioactive mystery? Are they just detecting radiation where there shouldn't be any? No. Are they not detecting? Not detecting where it should. <laughs> oh, that's a strange thing. Why should there be radiation at the Big O Ranch? Because uh, they lost a bomb there. Oh, hmm. What? When? <laughs> When did they lose a bomb? So far, this is a great round of factor spin. I love all three of these. Yeah, that's what I said. I didn't really know the best order for them. They all kind of had their potential. <laughs> yeah. 1958. 1958. Yeah. So before he has the ranch. Correct. Okay. It's, is it a ranch at this point? I don't know. I don't think so. No. Okay. And I know about an incident historically where... We almost like accidentally nuked Georgia, right? <laughs> Is that this? Yeah, that's this. And the bomb didn't blow up. Correct. That b- happened at Otis Redding's ranch? How close to it? it? That was within the radius of where maybe the bomb landed. Maybe. They don't really know. We really got lucky with that one. They still to this day don't know where the bomb is. No way. <laughs> really? They have a good guess, but. That's not enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but is it also, is it supposed to be radioactive detectable if it's not detonated? I don't know. Yeah, the, I mean, it's still uranium. It's still radioactive, whether it's detonated or not. Yeah, but it's encased. I don't know. It's true. What's the radius? Like, how big is the area that we're looking for this bomb? Most of Georgia. <laughs> oh, okay. Well. But there was there was a while where they truly did the people, whoever, the, the, the nuclear experts. The I don't people. know. The people who were like, oh, crap, we lost the bomb. We need to figure out where it landed for a while thought that's where they they were like yes the math says it should have landed here based on you know the wind speed and uh, doing all their nerdy stuff the plane was going this fast and the the momentum would have carried Mm -hmm. it and they were like it definitely is somewhere over here and nothing well they did find trace amounts of radiation that were higher than they were supposed to be than like what's considered natural okay suspicious but apparently that was just they they chalked that up to like some plant or something weird and then the crash site ended up being they're now pretty darn certain it's five to 15 feet under the wasaw sound oh which is over by the bay yeah (laughs) they're pretty sure they said based on hydrographic surveys done that they're pretty certain it's buried under five to 15 feet of silt at the bottom of the wasaw sound that's wild that's hard. Oh, I know about this like accidental fake bombing of Georgia. <laughs> and you said the radius is wide. Like I'm looking at a map and it's pretty much like if you were to split Georgia in half horizontally, it's basically the entire northern half of Georgia. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> They're like, it's somewhere That's, here. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. I suppose his ranch has a pretty good chance of being within that that circle then yeah i'm gonna say that this is true i think his ranch is in the potential ground zero non-ground zero is that still ground one i don't know i I don't know know. (laughs) anyway i think this is a fact this is a spin oh really what's so spun about it then his ranch complete opposite side of georgia oh their radius of where it was was pretty darn tight (laughs) i was gonna say it's not the kind of thing you lose but i I was going to move where it crashed, but then you were like, oh, I know about this. I was like, crap. Now I have to. (laughs) 
Like, what is it with you knowing about all my facts this week? You knew about a limo. Well, you I, knew about elevators. Right. You knew about the fake bombing. I knew about a limo. <laughs> this is weird. How am I only one for three? <laughs> what is happening? Well, to be fair, I don't know where it happened, and I don't know exactly where Otis's ranch was. I guess I should have known it was by Macon. But to be honest, if you just gave me a blank map of Georgia, I could not point to where Macon is. So I'm going to give you a blank map of Georgia, and I want you to point to where... Well, I can't. I can do Atlanta. I can do Savannah. I've never been to Georgia. It's pretty central. It's like dead middle. Like if you're if you're gonna you know where Atlanta is? Yes, I just said yes. Oh, I, oh. I could do that one. Then yeah, just like head south. Okay. The bomb was like all the way over by like Savannah, Georgia, all the way on the coast. Oh geez. <laughs> yeah, I would expect and hope that their range for where the bomb could be is very small. But also, never underestimate bureaucratic incompetence. Yeah. Man, you've thrown me off my rhythm somehow, even though I'm winning right now. <laughs> I, we're all off the rhythm. There is no rhythm to this. This is a wild week. What's up next? He had a presidential mix-up. Oh, good old presidential mix-up facts are back. <laughs> I promised you every president fact from now on was being considered a mix-up. <laughs> yeah. The first time it happened was Miranda Lambert. She just had one, but you weren't sure what to call it. You, it wasn't a brawl or a fight or a tussle, so you just said mix-up. And then for Duke Ellington, you had four presidential facts, and so they were all mix-ups. <laughs> yeah. And then we just established that for the presidential rule going forward. So which president is Otis Redding mixed up with? Jimmy Carter. Okay. Georgia. It all checks out. <laughs> Makes sense so far. What's the mix-up? He dug a well. Oh, well, well, well. <laughs> well, well, well. So... When little Otis Redding is taking odd jobs and, and digging wells and stuff. Yeah. He dug a well. Are you saying he dug a well for Jimmy Carter? Well, for Jimmy Carter's family. Right. Specifically Jimmy Carter's childhood home. Wow. Really? Yeah. Is it the peanut farm? Jimmy Carter loves that peanut farm. You're the Jimmy Carter expert here. Not me. Hardly. <laughs> but okay. It's the one on the Jimmy Carter National Park in Georgia that like encompasses like an entire town. Whoa. The, the school got converted. Like there's like the railroad that used to be there that Jimmy Carter ran for president out of. There's like a school that's been converted into like some sort of like visitor center now. Mm. <laughs> and it's like this whole thing has been turned into a national park. Okay. And it, on that park is his childhood home. Where Otis Redding dug well. Correct. Oh. How long did he dig wells? I don't think it was that significant of a stretch of his life. I was a kid just doing odd jobs. Oh, that's that's a hard one to believe. And when did he dig this well? I mean, not... Well, well, well. It couldn't have been when Jimmy Carter was a child. No. According to the timeline, Jimmy Carter would have been off at college. So he just dug a well for... Well, they were having their well replaced. Okay. <laughs> I don't know much about well replacement. From time to time, a well runs dry and you have to dig a new one somewhere else. Yeah, we learned all about that the other week <laughs> in Earth, Wind, and Fire. Because Earth, Wind, Fire, and Water, and your oh, cup groove yeah. over. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so it's not really for Jimmy Carter. It's just for Jimmy Carter's family. That's what I said from the get-go. I know. I don't know if I believe this. I knew you'd struggle. I don't think this is true. Don't think it's true? I think... This one's a spin. I think it's too coincidental that these paths crossed, which I don't know. Maybe it's not. Duke Ellington crossed paths with all those people. Sure. Teddy Roosevelt watched him play baseball. That seems improbable. This is on a similar level. Like there are millions of people in Georgia. I don't, I'm not that I'm trying to persuade you. I really don't care which way you answer this one because I've already gotten my 50-50, which is what I'm aiming for. Well, that's true. The pressure is off me. But the other bit of information I have about this is that's the distance from Jimmy Carter's childhood home and Dawson where he was digging 
else. If that helps. Oh, wow. You're saying it might be too coincidental. Just want to show you how. They are decently close <laughs> together. It's true. And I was thinking, I was like, Jimmy Carter, I feel like he's like southern Georgia, right? And Macon, we just talked about, is a little south of atlanta but i don't know if it's close but i he also apparently you know didn't grow up in macon no that's right they moved there how old was he oh see you complain about the length of my notes but my notes have failed me <laughs> so you sticking with it locking it in spin no i'm gonna stand by spin all right i think this is too coincidental this is a spin oh yeah it's a spin (laughs) (laughs) i should get all the presidential mix-up facts right but i don't but this one was honestly tough uh again after the way the first three went i was waiting on me to just say this fact you'd be like i know for a fact that jimmy carter didn't have a well in his childhood hole jimmy carter's (laughs) well was dug by the smith family yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. that was how i was ready for that one to go so well thank goodness it didn't (laughs) That was tough. Actually, surprisingly tough, but maybe not really. Dawson is a lot closer to Jimmy Carter than I imagined. 50-50 week. We did it. Gotta love a 50-50. We managed to pull that 50-50 back. Love that. Problem is, you still owe me, like, six. (laughs) I don't know. Yes, technically, for the year of healing, that is the goal we gotta get back to. You're just not doing a very good job. I guess not. I'm glad you enjoyed that week. That was really fun. This is a good set of four. I mean... We had royal coups. We had <laughs> nuclear disasters, radioactive mystery, and nuclear disasters, and royal coups, and presidents, and elevators, presidential mix-ups. And <laughs> wow, it was up and down and all around. And until next week, yeah, never ceases to surprise me when he finally leaves. Everyone, give a big spin at welcome back to Connor. It's me, it's me, it's me. Oh, it's you, it's you, it's you. It's Otis Redding, Otis Redding, Otis Redding. Yes, it is, is, is. Why were you doing that? Because you copied me. I did. You're right. I started that. No, you started it. I, I Wait, how does that work? I did it, and then you started the, the back and forth. True, but I wouldn't have had anything to go forth with if you didn't go back. No. No. I wouldn't have had anything to go back to if you didn't go forth with the first thing. So really, who's at fault? Still you. <laughs> okay. Well, a lot of that round of factor spin was about what people do and do not know, I think, is one thing we can say for sure. You know another thing people don't know? Flamingos bend their legs at the ankle, not the knee. Do they really? Yeah. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Maybe people don't know that. What I was going to say people don't know. That roller coasters were invented to distract Americans from sin? No, although that may also not be known. Ice pops were invented by an 11-year-old on accident? By putting juice in the freezer? Shocker. Do you know what else people don't know? Sloths can hold their breath longer than dolphins. Do they need to, though? Why would a sloth ever need to hold its breath? To be slower. I don't think that makes any sense. They slow their heart rate to the point that they only need to breathe once every, like, 40 minutes, whereas dolphins have to come up for air after 10. That's pretty wild. I did not know that, too. You're right. All these things are things I have not known. What was it you wanted to tell me? I wanted to tell you that people also have no idea who the woman on the cover of Otis Blue is. Oh, really? It's from a stock photo. Nobody has been able to positively 100% ID her. The leading theory is that it's a German model, Dagmar Drager, but nobody knows. Huh, that is interesting. It is, right? Wild. I don't know if we've had an album cover like that before. We've certainly had some interesting and obscure ones, but... Almost as weird as the fact that lobsters taste with their feet. That is weird. I think I knew that one. In the same kind of way I knew elevators. I'm glad I didn't put that one in the things you might not know section. Uh Uh-huh. 
What do you think? I mean, there's little blue strips on the side of the album cover. There are. Maybe that's why it's called Otis Blue, to be honest. I think it's called Blue because of all the Mr. Pitiful and sad, melancholy songs. Otis Blue, like, okay, that could be, yeah, blue, blues, mm-hmm. sad. It also could just be a color pun on red, redding, but this is Otis Blue. I always thought that was kind of funny. Who added the ing to my R-E-D-D? <laughs> anyway... It's time to talk about the album. We got 11 tracks today. 11 Otis Redding songs. And like I said, they all come from different places. So we'll talk about what's original, what's a cover, what's from, where, and why. Starting with Old Man Trouble. Old Man Trouble. Darn right. That one's up first. It's a Redding original. This is one of his own. And also other versions of the song appeared in other capacities. Notably, there is a different version on the Dock of the Bay album. Hmm. So you would have heard this song either way. What did you think of Old Man Trouble? I like it. Yeah? No bells ringing yet. I, I don't think this is one you maybe knew beforehand, but... I did not. What do you think about his voice? The style? I like all the horns. The little trumpet. Bap, bap, blep. A lot of bleppy. Real blay trumpets. Blatty, one might say. <laughs> right. He's big on the horns. I mean, through the whole album. Ba-da-da-da-da. Is it, was been stuck in my head since I listened to it. Yeah. It's so interesting to me because this song almost starts out like a non-song. There's like instruments playing, but I can't really find the, the rhythm and the groove of it until we hit the verse. Old Man Trouble's interesting. A memorable start to the record. Sure is. And the whole hook of it, you know, he's personifying trouble, begging Old Man Trouble to pass him by and just leave him alone, bring on the good times instead. This whole album, lyrically, I think very much exists in its time period. I don't think anything you hear too much on the album is gonna, like, shock you today, but I feel like in the context of 1965, it really stands out, honestly. I think it does too. Yeah, among most of the other albums that time. Actually, one of the interesting things I saw about Old Man Trouble is that people were describing it as phantasmagoric in nature, which means, you know, it kind of like conjures up images of bad feelings in the blues in a very theatrical kind of way. I like tried to dig into phantasmagoric as an adjective, and it talked about like old-timey theater shows where they'd project shadows onto the walls of ghosts and stuff. That's what Old Man Trouble has evoked for some people. I don't know. Did you get that sense? I did. <laughs> it's a very specific sense to have gotten, but definitely the theatrical aspect of it. It feels like it's got a big scope for an individual singing about his own problems. I just love his voice. I don't know if I necessarily love what the instruments are doing the whole time on this song. It's mostly two chords back and forth for a lot of the verses and stuff, but his voice is just so captivating and so good. I think that carries the record in a lot of times where the rest of it doesn't necessarily hold its own. Up next, though, is a song I know was probably the first and maybe biggest bell ringer on the entire album for you, right? Or for anybody, really. That song is Respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, yep. This is another Redding original. He wrote Respect, and, uh, you know, the original version is probably quite a bit different to listen to than what you're used to, Yeah. which is the Aretha Franklin version we've all come to know and love, and R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Significantly less spelling in this version. Yeah, infinitely less spelling. All the bees would be disappointed. Because there's no spelling, bees. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and there's a lot less of the sock-it-to-me, sock-it-to-me, like, disco kind of energy to it. Man, Otis could sock it to me if he wanted to. Yeah, he probably could. 
So suck it to me, 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 suck it to me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a very different connotation behind each of the versions of the song too, right? Otis Redding's version, it's born out of this exhausting touring schedule and long recording hours. Wait, his version's not about women getting respect from their husband? No, it's not about women getting respect for their husband. In fact, it's the opposite. It's about a husband trying to get respect from his wife uh, when he gets home from being on the road the whole time. Whoa. Yeah, apparently the main sentiment comes from his drummer, Al Jackson, who told him all you can look for is a little respect when you get home from being on the road. And there was actually a little bit of controversy around it too. His road manager, Earl Speedo Sims, thought that he helped contribute a lot to the song, even though he never really got proper credit so you know however it happened otis took all that advice to heart made it into this song he said that respect took a day to write 20 minutes to arrange and one take to record which is just mind-blowing i don't know i can't wrap my head around things like that as much as we talk about them they still just impress me respect not necessarily the otis redding version but respect as a song is maybe one of the best known songs of all time like a cross popular culture (laughs) Everybody knows R-E-S-P-E-C-T. This man wrote it and did his version in a day. It's just so remarkable. That is remarkable. And I also love how this version is so brassy, right? It's a whole new instrumental dimension that Aretha Franklin's version is kind of lacking. Not in a bad way, right? Not a bad lacking. Just a different interpretation altogether. Which version do you think, Hot Take, is better? I think I have to give it to... Aretha Franklin. Really? I thought maybe the horns would lure you over to Otis's side. I don't know. There's just something. Uh, the, the inner bee in me loves a good spell. <laughs> You've got an inner spelling bee? Don't we all? I suppose. Aretha Franklin's version of Respect topped the R&B and pop charts. Rolling Stone also named her version the number five greatest song of all time. It did not fare quite as well for Otis, but he took it all in good humor. He loved the song for himself, and he also loved Aretha Franklin's version of it too. He congratulated her for all her success. So, no bad blood. Nothing but, well, mutual respect. (laughs) Then we moved on to track three, A Change Is Gonna Come. This one is not an Otis Redding song. This one's by Sam Cooke, and it's a cover. Here's what I'll say about that. I listened to it. Sam Cooke's version is so slow and impassioned and honestly, honestly just phenomenal. Like, go listen to it. (laughs) Like, even if you don't necessarily listen to this album, which you're listening to this episode, you might as well. But like, at least, at least go listen to Sam Cooke's The Change Is Gonna Come. Remarkable. Otis's version, of course, it adds a little more brass, speeds up the tempo a little bit. But I think his voice is every bit as emotional. But I really honestly do prefer Sam Cooke's other arrangement. What'd you think? Instantly starting out with the horns on this one. Yeah, probably to its benefit, I think. Pulls you in right away. And I also love the way he winds up his vocal into I was born by a river. Like, it just draws you straight into it. Yeah, and I mean, what a classic sound. For that, you know, you get about 20 seconds in and he just goes, ah, and the music like thing hits the beat and the song like really takes off with that nice groove. It was like, that is, mm, that is so good. Honestly, perfection. The song itself protests racial segregation. It's kind of a civil rights era song. And it was intended that way for Sam Cooke too. Redding said he was compelled to release this cover in the wake of Cooke's murder a year earlier to, quote, fill the silent void left by his sudden absence. Wow. Yeah, so there's that extra dimension of emotion to it as a tribute 
to this person he really admired and looked up to and who was making a mark not only on music but also on social climate and the world at the time. A Change Is Gonna Come has to be one of my favorites on this album. It's really good. I think I can guess that this is going to be your pick for the playlist. I really was just starting to think about that, and it may end up being so. We'll have to wait till the end, but yeah, it would not surprise me. When I heard it, I was like, this is a song James would pick. Yeah, it is. It really is. And that, you know, that bump, 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 it's it's really good. The way it builds. Yeah. You know what song I might not pick for the playlist, though? Not necessarily. Down. Down in the Valley? It's Down in the Valley. Hmm. Down in the Valley. Mm-hmm-hmm. Yeah. This one is by Burt Burns, Solomon Burke, Babe Chivian, and Joe Martin. Otis actually toured with Solomon Burke, so we got to know him and his music very well. Otis's version, it's funked up. You know, it's a little funkier. Burke's, to me, feels a little more stiff and, frankly, a little older-fashioned. Redding kind of brings this free spirit and breathes some life into this song, I think to a really great effect. I think Down in the Valley gets moving a little bit, especially a good pick-me-up after a change is going to come. I just love the rasp in his voice, especially in some of these parts, you know, way down in the valley. Like, wow. I don't know if you could sing that any better. Yeah, I don't know if you could. I mean, it's really good. It's This is peak soul music. Like, there's so much energy and just, like, rawness in these lyrics, in this song. That's the real charm of it. I think beyond what the music and the lyrics are doing, just the overall atmosphere of Down in the Valley and so much of this album, honestly, is what sells me on a lot of it. It's it's probably my bottom third, sadly. Down in the Valley, really? Uh, when I'm looking at everything else that's on here, it kind of has to be. Uh, that's true. There's good stuff coming up on the back half of this album. And, I mean, still good stuff left on the front half of the album, too. With Bally Guy calling you out. I've been loving you too long. I've been loving you. <laughs> yeah. I could see this one being your playlist pick, maybe. I heard the mixtaper uh, singing this the other day, and I'm not sure why. The mixtaper was singing I've Been Loving You Too Long? Yeah. I'm pretty certain I saw him caressing his thimble while he was doing it. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I've Been Loving You Too Long. What a beautiful song. It's by Redding and Jerry Butler. So, so like, respect set off bells, right? Because obviously I know the Aretha Franklin version. Because you know Aretha, yeah. This set off even more bells and they were kind of alarm bells why i can't place what this has been in really recently (laughs) oh no this song was used in something that i've seen like within the last year (laughs) and i don't know what it was Uh oh because unfortunately i consume so much pop culture i don't know it's hard to narrow it down (laughs) but this was used like as like a background song in a scene of a movie or TV show I watched like within the last 365 days. Interesting. That's weird. Yeah, I did not expect that. I, I thought this would maybe be one you don't know. No, I absolutely knew this one. From the minute it started with the I've been loving you. I was like, ah, where do I know this? <laughs> well, it looks like I've been loving you too long was featured in the following movies. Children of a Lesser God, Heartbreakers, Liana, Soul Man, Stormy Monday, and The Inevitable Defense. Feet of Mr. and Pete. All right, then. <laughs> any of those ringing any more bells? Can't say that they have. I've been loving you too long has been in Twin Peaks, season three, episode 15. Suits. That's what it is. I was literally 11. just looking at it. I just found it. <laughs> I'm watching Suits right now. <laughs> ah. And that's what I literally just typed in. I've been loving you, Suits. One of the characters is super into like jazz music. Oh, sad jazz? <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it was. And. It was wild. Well, now we know. Yeah, it's also 
in Season 4, Episode 20 of Scandal, Season 5, Episode 5 of A Million Little Things, and Season 2, Episode 4 of The Bear. So it gets around. Yeah, I can't, that's so wild. That Again, this song started playing. I was like, why do I know this? <laughs> <laughs> well, what did you think? Did you like it? Did you love it? Oh, I love it. It's great. Oh, it's so great. Right? Man, you know, that was a mystery for the mystery department. We solved it. We solved it. We did it. I'm honestly proud of that. Maybe someone else out there had the same experience in the audience. Maybe we just solved it for someone else, too. Some other Suits watching fan out there. Now you know. Season 6, episode 11. Yeah. The song's first appearance was as a single, but its very first live performance happened during the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, wow. shortly before his death. Yeah, and people consider it to be one of the best performances of his life. I believe it. Mm-hmm. And what a heartbreaking song. Lyrically, probably the, maybe, maybe, lyrically, the strongest track on this album. I think it is. I got to agree. His woman's love is growing cold, even though his is the strongest that it's ever been. And he's been loving her for too long to unlearn it and start over. It's like it's ingrained. It's second nature. And it's too hard just to let that all go cold turkey. Ah, man, the emotion. And it's so short. It is. I want the song to be six or seven minutes long. I know. Normally we complain when a song is too long, but it's like, please give me more. Well, we can complain when a song is too short too. Find the middle ground. Goldie locks it. But after that soft and soulful and sweet ballad, probably you could make an argument for the strongest track on the album. Then we get to Shake. Shake's another Sam Cooke song. And in terms of substance, it is significantly less, I think. It's a song about dancing in the clubs. Shaking. It is interesting. Right? Cook's original is once again the slower version, and it's a little more straightforward or like by the rock and roll pop book. Redding's version is, as usual, brassy, upbeat, funky, actually danceable. <laughs> you have a hard time shaking to Sam Cook's shake. But honestly, Otis's shake just kind of makes you get into it, doesn't it? Yeah. This is a real whiplashy song for me. There's times I'm just like, yeah, I'm into it. And then other parts of the song, I'm just like, yeah. Eh, fair enough. The whiplash, it's shaking you. That's what's happening. That's what's giving you whiplash. You're getting shook. I think of this whole album, Shake is probably the second or third most fun songs. It's near the top of the list for like the ones that I have a blast listening to. I just feel like it's missing something and I don't know what. I agree. You know what song's not missing anything? My girl. My girl. Another bell. Ding, ding, ding. Yes. This is one you got to know. Yep. You, you have to know the song. My Girl is track seven on this album. I got sunshine. <laughs> anyway, we're not going to do that the whole time. Uh, it's instantly recognizable by that riff right off the bat. The song is by Smokey Robinson and Ronald White, members of the Motown band The Miracles. The song itself is a Temptations cover. The Temptations did it first. It was inspired by Smokey Robinson's wife. Yeah, that's the version I really know. Oh, yeah. Everybody knows the Temptations version. Their song came out in late 1964. It was the Temptations' first number one hit. And in 2017, their version was added to the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I think My Girl is a genius song. I agree. Just brilliant. He's got sunshine on a cloudy day. He's singing a sweeter song than all the birds. You know, it's May. Even though it's cold outside, he's warm and fuzzy inside. It's going to be May. It's going to be May. <laughs> no pucker face. Yes. And what's making him feel so good? My girl. <laughs> My girl. Talking about it. And, oh, how do you feel about the Hey, Hey, Hey bridge? Yes. I mean, they really 
prime you for with the horns. Yeah. Do you like... I keep asking you this. I feel like I'm never going to get the answer that fits the episode, but do you like Otis's version or the Temptations version better? Listen, there's one thing I learned from Suits. It's don't ask a question you don't already know the answer to. Like, what episode of TV is this song from? <laughs> you already broken that rule. Well, I'm not a lawyer. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Otis. My good friend, Otis. But I gotta give it to the Temptations. The Temptations? <laughs> I understand. I honestly almost disagree. Really? I think of all the covers and different versions out there that, you know, are on this album, this is the closest to fully, like, winning me over to Otis's side. Oh, I absolutely agree. Okay. Well, then we're on the same page about that. But it still goes to the Temptations. Up next is Wonderful World. Ding, ding! Wonderful World rang a bell for you, too? Uh, we're really, we're in a real bell ringer stretch of the album. Wow, I'm surprised. I think I picked a okay, picked better than I thought here. I thought most of these would be new, but you just like like the style. No, it turns out you know a lot of these, like outright. The problem is I know other versions of them. <laughs> well, that's true. Do you know the Sam Cooke version of Wonderful World? Yes, I sure do. Because this one is by Sam Cooke, Lou Adler, and Herb Alpert. Yeah, the Sam Cooke version was used in the 1978 film Animal House and also in the 2005 Will Smith film <laughs> Hitch that I've, I've seen both of. Okay, so you know exactly where this one came from. Yeah. Did you know that right off the top of your head when you heard it? You were like, oh, this is that song from... Well, I knew it was from Animal House. It's in the like famous lunchroom scene with the food fight. Oh, like a key piece of it? Yeah. Mm, I haven't seen Animal House. I don't know. But then when I went to Google it to confirm so I didn't say something silly on the podcast, I found out it was also in Hitch, which I've also seen and don't remember. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, Cook's version is definitely famous and well-known. It was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2014 actually i really like wonderful world i think this one is such a pleasant surprise on the album you know you hear a song like oh respect my girl satisfaction like yes i know this i know that i have expectations for things wonderful world i really didn't have any expectations it's so fun it blew me away <laughs> it's a song about learning things education is it going to change how we feel i might not know much about how to practically influence the world around me, but I do know that love can change a lot of things. So even though I can't do chemistry or speak French, I'm gonna do what I can do and put love out into the world. What a happy song. What a great message in such a such a succinctly packaged way. For once, also, Otis Redding's version is the slower version. <laughs> Cook's version features this ringing guitar and a lot of vocal harmony. Redding exchanges all that for a little more of a meandering pace, crunchier guitar, and a solo vocal, save for one little harmony line on the chorus. And of course, he adds brass. That's kind of his trademark, really. <laughs> Let me take this song and add horns to it. Yeah. Also interesting fact about Wonderful World, after he wrote this song, Sam Cooke would go into bars and sing this song to women and claim that he wrote it on the spot just for her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how effective it was, but it's definitely a cool story. Barney Stinson levels of, of picking up there. Yep. All I know is that I love you, and I wonder if you love me too. What a wonderful world this is going to be. Would you buy that? If someone came up to you in a bar and started singing this song to you and saying, I made this up right now about you, do you believe it? Absolutely not. No? Unless like it was personalized to me. Oh, like put your name in it or something? No, no, like if it like had details about me. Oh, well, don't know much about history. Don't know much about biology. Don't know much about the science book. What else do you need? <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
<laughs> Remember a few episodes ago when I called you lonely and I said you probably deserved that? I don't feel bad anymore. Well, now we're even. Yeah, you know, like, and even if they did, they start like describing me or whatever and put my name in it, I'd still be like, okay, but is this like a rehearsed song that you're just changing the words to to fit me? Mm. It's a pretty good song for you to have made up right here, right now. Suspicious. Yeah. Now, now if it's a bad song, maybe I believe it. Oh, true. But there's a tip. You know, go out and try it, maybe. <laughs> don't, but maybe do, and see if it works. Go out and try it, maybe don't. Yeah. But it's official stance on trying it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> if you do it and it doesn't work, we didn't tell you to do it. But if it works, we want all the credit. Absolutely. It's our idea. Well, it was Sam Cooke's idea, but we told it to you, so. Well, it was our idea for you to do it. Sure. Well, let's talk about Rock Me Baby, track number nine. Ding, ding. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, you knew this one too. You mean one of the most recorded blues songs of all time? <laughs> of course I knew it. <laughs> Literally one of the most recorded <laughs> blues songs. Yeah, I know. I mean, do you want me to talk about the B.B. King version, the Tina Turner version, the Eric Clapton version? Like, what do you want me to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do love B.B. King. The, the most famous versions are by B.B. King and Muddy Waters. B.B. King's recording was actually his first song in the Billboard Hot 100's Top 40. And it's in the Blues Hall of Fame. It's a great song. It's just just classic. This one's just a classic. Did you catch it, by the way? Catch what? This song is, once again, a 12-bar blues song. Oh, I never catch it. You never catch it. It's okay. It's everywhere. It's all around us. The lyrics on this one, admittedly, leave a lot to be desired. You can rock me, baby. You can rock me all night long. Rock me, baby. Rock me, baby. Rock me, babe. You can rock me all night long. Keep on rocking me till my back ain't got no bone. <laughs> like, I know that's the way the blues are kind of just structured, but this is like, this song stands out for that level of lyricism Yeah. in my mind. I feel like the rest of the album, especially coming off something as innovative and original and unique as Wonderful World, Rock Me Baby grinds the lyrical progression of this album pretty solidly to a halt. Yeah. But again, he just sings it great. This one's probably awesome at bottom three. Bottom three for Rock Me Baby. Bottom third. I don't know. I guess I didn't really pay attention to how I was breaking up. Bottom three, bottom four. I don't know. Yeah, somewhere down there. Sure. Up next is, I think, the one... Song that I I really feel like maybe shouldn't be on this album. <laughs> maybe that's a hot take. I don't know. Maybe I'm biased. I like it. Up next is I can't get no satisfaction. Hmm. Do you like this version better than the, the Rolling Stones? <laughs> yeah. No. This one. This one is by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. The whole, I mean, it's fun. I really enjoy it. No, I do. They do an interesting way of incorporating the horns. Yeah. No, I agree. It's definitely a different flavor than the original. Yeah. And I've never been the biggest fan of the Rolling Stones version either, necessarily. Well, which version are you the biggest fan of? Out of the two, I gotta give it to the Rolling Stones. I'm a guitar guy. Fair enough. This is a very horn version. It's interesting, too. You know, the the opening riff, instantly recognizable. Like, Redding has it here with a guitar, but pretty quickly he turns it over to the horns. And to be honest, that's really the way that Keith Richards intended for it to be played originally. Like, that's the uh, first sound that they went for. When Redding's cover came out, it was so good that it confused people who started accusing the Rolling Stones of stealing it from him. Fair enough. That's what they did. What do you know about the history of Satisfaction? What do you mean by that? Well, just the song itself, like, about it. I mean, I know why he recorded it. Otis Redding? Why'd he do it? It's because the Rolling Stones covered his song, I've Been Loving You Too Long. And so to return the favor, he covered this one. Mm-hmm. Well, I meant more like, okay, I think Satisfaction, honestly, has one of the most interesting songwriting stories in all of popular music. Oh, really? Yes. Hit me with it. You know that opening riff that you talked about? That instantly recognizable, iconic... Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun
Keith Richards dreamt that up in his sleep. Cool. Yeah, one morning, he wakes up in the morning, finds out his tape recorder has been on, and he was like, this is strange. Let me figure out what happened here and hit play. There's about two minutes of him playing guitar, and he says, then me snoring for the next 40 minutes. (laughs) One of the most iconic riffs in rock music, and it just appeared. He just woke up with it on his tape recorder one day and just forgot that he created it which is unreal. Lyrics for the song came from Mick Jagger less than a week before they were set to record the song. He really put it off to the last second. They did record the song. Here's, get this, get the time frame of all this. Rolling Stones record the song in May of 1965, then had it released as a single in the U.S. on June 5th, less than a month later. Quick turnaround for them, but a really quick turnaround for Otis Redding. He recorded his version of the song during that 24-hour session on July 10th, a little over a month since it had been released, and two months since it was written. Wow. Yeah, which I think is one of the reasons people accused him of stealing it. It's because his version appeared at the same time as the Rolling Stones version. Yeah. It's not like one had been around for a while. The Stones version has garnered pretty wide acclaim. BMI says it was the 91st most performed song in the entire 20th century. Vox and Newsweek have both said the song and his guitar riff, quote, shook the world. And Otis Redding's version, maybe it doesn't shake the world, but but it's not bad. It's it's here. It's not bad. No, it's it's not bad. And last but not least, 11 of 11, You Don't Miss Your Water by William Bell. Well, well, well. <laughs> it's a very well-heavy episode, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, this song's all about, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone. You don't miss your water until the well has dried up and you need it the most. We know uh, Jimmy Carter wasn't missing his water. No, he wasn't. Yeah, the uh, song is by William Bell, and it was actually his debut single, released in 1961, and it hit number 95 on the pop charts. The lyrics are actually about homesickness. It's not about a person, like you might be led to believe. It's about a place. Bell wrote it while he was away from his Memphis home, playing with a New York jazz orchestra. His original version is piano-based and almost waltzy in its tempo, but it's actually a good bit faster than Otis's cover. One of the rare times that Otis chooses to slow things down. His version is a lot more reliant on the guitar, and a lot less on drums. In fact, in Otis's version, there's barely any piano to be found at all. It comes in late and very, very much in the background. <laughs> but I like You Don't Miss Your Water. Honestly, I would put this one in my top Ooh. several. It's on my short list. I like it a lot. Well. You didn't like it? I guess I have to do top four, middle third, bottom four for it to be symmetrical the way I want. Yeah, that's true. And I think the fact that it's not in my top three got to fall in the middle third at least. Mm, sad. Well, I like it a lot. I mostly just like the lyrics and the sentiment of it. And it's just so emotional and good and a great way to end the album, I think. Yeah, it's a good way to end it. I like it. I do too. An expanded edition of Otis Blue that came out in 2008 has more than two dozen alternate takes, extra songs, live tracks, and more. And that's the version we're doing. We've decided we're going to do that version. So (laughs) up next. Yeah. Yeah. No, but if you listen to this album and you went, wow, that last 32 minutes and 50 seconds really blew me away. I wish I had more. Guess what? You can. It's right out there. So uh, let's talk about our final thoughts in Final Spin. This is another toughie for me. 
This is another hard score to reconcile with my love for the album and the artist. Great album, honestly, historic, genre-defining, record-setting, like, incredible career, incredible guy. I think it's limited by the time it came out in. Just in terms of every album ever, you can tell this one came out in 1965. That's not bad. His score just reflects that a little bit, and it makes me sad, but definitely just a mind-blowing record. Musically, there's so much to love. A lot of really interesting chords here, especially with that, I don't know, sad jazz, (laughs) blues, and soul roots. There's just a lot here that engages you as a listener, musically. Giving it a 78. Lyrics have their ups and downs. You know, something like Respect and I've Been Loving You Too Long, My Girl, Wonderful World, just incredible. And then, like, contrast that with Down in the Valley, Shake, Rock Me Baby, (laughs) you know. It doesn't necessarily overcome its weakest moments. Given lyrics of 76, still, not bad. Instruments of production, limited by recording technology at the time. However, I love the horns and the drums consistently. The guitar often takes a backseat, which is an interesting choice. And I don't think it works against this album. I think that's a real unique thing that I like about it. Given a 78 instruments of production, overall vibe, classic album, big time history, quick, honestly, maybe a little short. And there's a moment or two that pulls me out of it, like Satisfaction, right? And I can't tell if that's just because of the things that the song has become since then, like the Rolling Stones version, how big that's been. I don't know. Anyway, I'm giving the overall vibe an 84. Regrettably, he did not write a majority of the tracks, like we talked about a lot of covers. So no bonus point. Gives him an overall score of 78.6 for Otis Blue. And in this case, he does not dethrone the king, as far as our rankings go for all time, you know, all the episodes we've done. He is at number 536, which puts him below Elvis, but above NSYNC. Dang. For now, that's where he goes. Forgot how much you didn't like NSYNC. But what did you think about Otis, though? That's the real question we need to answer. I liked him. Let's just jump right to the chase. Yeah. I liked him a seven. Oh, jeez. That is very <laughs> right to the chase. That's not what I was expecting. Okay, a seven. That's interesting. Why? What What makes you go, that's a seven? I, I liked a lot of the songs, and, you know, bells were ringing like a wedding was going on. Yeah. It's kind of got the Hank Williams effect, unfortunately, where I like a lot of the songs, but I just don't know if I'll really be going back that often. Okay. That is tough. We haven't talked about that certain element of your rankings in a while, but that's definitely a thing you've expressed in the past. Yeah, my uh, my rankings are very biased. <laughs> to what you'll come back and re-listen to. Exactly. Above Ariana Grande, though. But this does break our nine streak. It does. Our four-episode streak of nines from you has come to an end. And, dare I say... Don't say it. I think this is also an official end... Don't say it. ...to the moon era. The moon era is not dead. Yeah. Well, so seven, huh? We need to know, first of all, your unit. I think there's a clear unit. Seven chiming bells. Oh, of course. That is a pretty clear unit. See, that are seven wells. Okay, consider this. Seven chiming wells. Absolutely not. Get out of here with that. Oh, okay. I thought that was just a good way to combine them, but absolutely not. (laughs) Nope. Where in your sevens is it going? Honestly, your sevens are kind of stacked. It's either above or below Young the Giant. Okay. I'm going to have to give Young the Giant another re-listen. Sure. Wow, which puts it up against Californication and The Carter Three, which I'm just now realizing those two albums are seemingly very close for your tastes. (laughs) I'm a little surprised to see Red Hot Chili Peppers mere steps away from Lil Wayne. Yeah, I kind of liked Lil Wayne. That wasn't bad. Go to seven. No, yeah. Okay. That's that. That's a score for you. As for my top three, 
due to being greedy last week. Very greedy. I only get my normal top three. Sure do. Sorry, audience, but you can't get no satisfaction with getting all of my picks this week. So my top three. Really? Wait, 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 wait. Order. That's going to be your honorable mention? Oh, dear. Uh, I didn't say that. You can assume what you want. Well, I'm glad that you're not getting a honorable mention. You don't deserve a honorable mention if that was going to be what it was. Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that's what it was going to be. In album order. A change is going to come. Hmm. Skipping respect? Yeah. No respect. You gave that the danger field treatment. The, really, the sad part was having to skip old man trouble. Uh, okay, fair. But anyway, a change is going to come. I've been loving you too long. And my girl. Talking about it. And now we got to do playlist picks. Yeah, well, you already kind of said what yours was going to be. I feel like a change is going to come, and I've been loving you too long would be my picks. Those are absolutely my picks. So there it is. Locked in. <laughs> oh, hey. That was easy. <laughs> I thought it might be more difficult than that, given that respect is on this album and my girl and wonderful world is interesting oh, and i mean i mean i kept telling you i preferred the other versions well that's true but that doesn't <laughs> mean they can't make it to the playlist it's true well shocking shocking indeed and exciting and enthralling captivating marvelous that's gonna do it for this week and another episode of spin it the 114th episode of spin it crushing it if you want more episodes of spin it obviously be sure to check out the rest of the episodes in our feed wherever you get your podcasts and you can find more information about us and more things that we're up to on instagram at spin it pod official and threads at spin it pod official on twitter or x at spin it pod social media is a mess right now <laughs> it is and on the web at www.spinitpod.com that ain't no mess that's a lovely website that you should go explore and see. Check out the trophy case. Check out the supplemental content. Watch me cry while eating wings. Twice. And yeah, we'll see you next week for another week of music, another album, another party. Next week might be a little complicated, but we're going to try and keep it simple. Is that a teaser? Yes. Consider yourself teased. <laughs> Until next time. Keep, keep spinning. spinning. So what are you going to do with all those great facts I gave you earlier? Oh my gosh. I can't keep them in. They're got to get cut. Oh, no. Just like throw them here for outro banter. Let the audience hear them. Outro banter? Yeah. All your stupid facts? Good grief. Before toilet paper was invented, Americans used to use corn cobs. Ew. What? Yeah. Long ways? Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> Why didn't we think of anything better? The shortest war in history lasted 38 minutes. What war was that? That's not important. It kind of is. Shadows are darker on the moon. Darn you. <laughs> it's our moon era. <laughs> yeah, apparently the Earth's atmosphere scatters more sunlight, so our shadows aren't too dark. We've talked way too in-depth about how sunlight <laughs> scatters on the moon. Through the window in Kid Cudi's room. That's enough. Manhattan ants are an ant species unique to New York City. Manhattan ants? Yeah. Does the Manhattan ant colony have a queens? <laughs> That's actually really funny. Isn't it? I know. The world's smallest wasp is smaller than an amoeba. What? That's enough. Why are all these facts about bees and ants now? Cut it out. We have an episode to do. Some single-celled organisms are bigger than a wasp, like an amoeba. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> That's enough. That's enough out of you. Queen Elizabeth II's cows sleep on waterbeds. <laughs>